Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. So here's my first question. Have you recovered from last week? (laughs) A lot of information, important information. Two words you should have taken away from last week. They are? Good. Protos first, Deuteros second. The temple tabernacle represents two worlds. The Protos, the holy place, this world. The Deuteros, the holy of holies, the world to come. The priesthood, the high priest of the Aaronic order brings blood from a sacrifice in the Protos into the Deuteros to make atonement one day a year on Yom Kippur in the earthly temple. Our high priest of the Melchizedekin order brings and brought, brought, not brings, brought blood from a sacrifice sacrifice in the protos into the deuteros to make atonement once for all time hebrews 9:12 but he having offered one sacrifice for sins all time and there he sits waiting and we sit here waiting as well because the protos this world still stands remember it's a sign for the present age remember this So for now, Hebrews, quoting Psalm 110, tells us in verse 9 and 12, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And so, just as the people in the temple, when the high priest went in on Yom Kippur, just as they sat anxiously awaiting his his return from the Holy of Holies, he went in to offer. They sat waiting for his return with with anxiousness. So we sit waiting for our high priest to come out of the Deuteros and come and get us and offer and present to us this beauty that's coming. That is 47 minutes of last week's message in two minutes. You got it? Excellent. Well, here comes another very important one, and long. So, maybe some of the most challenging, but I'm going to need your patience. I'm going to need your attention. And if you're listening online to this sermon right now, this teaching, you must commit to listening to it all the way through. Because if you stop in the middle, you're going to get way off. So, here we go. Our Our message today, our teaching is called this, the sacrificed lamb. I'm thinking back to a song by hippie messianic Jewish band lamb Joel Chernoff with this voice, the sacrificed lamb has been slain, his blood on the altar is laid. Anyone know that song? That's how it sounds and that's probably why you don't want to know it. Just kidding, Joel, I love you. 
We are going to work on and have been, and this is what I realized as I was preparing this week's teaching, what we've been doing this entire time is correcting assumptions. Anyone know the famous phrase about assumptions and what happens when you assume something, right? Because we're in holy space, when you assume something, you make a Balaam's companion out of you and me. We can tie it to the Torah, right? But we've been working on correcting some some assumptions, some staples, pillars, foundations of Christian theology, things that for 1,900 plus years have been taught and assumed to be be the truth. And we've uncovered the assumptions, for instance, that it's assumed that Yeshua did away with the Torah, that Yeshua did away with the priesthood, that the Torah is done away with. We've uncovered them, We've explained where they came from. We've evaluated them through the scriptures from a Jewish perspective, historically, contextually, honestly. And in the end, what did we find? We found that these assumptions are incorrect. That's what we've found. That's what we've worked on. And and so assumptions can be dangerous. And instead of going with the classic translation and instead of going with the Balaam's companion, let's just say when you assume it's possible you could make a butt out of you and me. I can't believe he's saying that in holy space. Stick with me. Because in essence, what we've done over the course of this series is raised some pretty important buts about some very fundamental assumptions about the book of Hebrews, about the Bible as a whole, about the entire Christian perspective. For instance, Yeshua ended the priesthood and it's useless, but... The Torah says the Aaronic priesthood is eternal. It's a statute forever. And where there is a temple, God will have his man. Jeremiah 33, 18, you remember this? He'll never fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings. So to say that Yeshua did away with the priesthood and it's useless, well, but... Yeshua destroyed the temple. He made it irrelevant, but... The apostles continued to go to the temple even after his death. And the prophets, they promised that there's another one coming. Yeshua brought the new covenant and we're living under it. But where are the better promises? We're not living in that golden age. We're still struggling. We're living out, not living perfectly obedient lives. Yeshua did away with our responsibility, thank God, to the Torah and to the law and the responsibility we have to live that. But the Torah is the foundation of the new covenant. It's what's going to be written on our hearts and minds. But I've saved the best but for last. There are many more, by the way. But every assumption has proven to be false because there's a but. Remember the name of this series, A Better Covenant, Yeshua and the Sacrificial System. That's the name of the last 15 weeks of teaching. So I owe you 
If we're going to call it Yeshua and the sacrificial system, I owe you something about Yeshua and sacrifice. And so that's today. Yeshua, the sacrifice lamb. Here's the assumption. Jesus is a sacrifice, a sin offering. And it's not difficult to arrive at this assumption to conclusion. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Messiah was sacrificed sacrificed once to take away many sins. This is from the book we're studying. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Yeshua, the high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Ephesians, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Messiah loved us, and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we have the author of Hebrews. Now we have Paul. We have John. The next day, John saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and Romans and Messiah Yeshua, whom God displayed publicly as a fancy word, propitiation, sacrifice in his blood through faith. And this one, for sure, Isaiah 53. I mean, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering a sacrifice, right? So here's where that lands us in the Christian mind, which is the prevalent mind when it comes to the understanding of Hebrews and Jesus. I'm reading to you from a website called allaboutfollowingjesus.com, which that's great because that makes it very easy. If I want to follow Jesus, all I need to do is go to all about following Jesus and it should have the answers. So here's what it says. The blood shed by bulls and goats under Moses delayed God's wrath against sin. And he quotes Hebrews for these. Did I put that up here? No, I didn't. The blood shed by bulls and goats under Moses delayed God's wrath against sin. An animal's blood had to be endlessly and repeatedly shed because it couldn't once for all remove sins. Their blood could cleanse the instruments and symbols of forgiveness, but only human blood could cleanse human beings. Wow, that's a big assumption. Somehow or another, I have missed that in the Torah. Do we really know and understand what was just communicated right there? Because I'm telling you, this is the assumed truth. Here's the assumption. In the early days, people sinned and brought bulls and goats to get rid of those sins. Side note, does that sound like a good idea? Does that sound like an all-knowing, smart God would, and this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, does that sound like a good plan? My neighbor accidentally scalped my grass when he cut it. 
I'm going to kill him. And it's just fine because I can bring a goat and that will take care of it. Well, actually, since it's murder, I'll bring a bull. It's kind of a big deal. That system makes no sense. Can you imagine how far we could run with this idea? Adultery, murder, theft. I'll just bring a bull or a goat. It's going to be fine. First assumption. In the early days, people sinned and brought bulls and goats to get rid of those sins. Bulls and goats, to quote all about following Jesus, delayed God's wrath by taking away sin. Big assumption incorrect assumption based on the scriptures. Why? Because Hebrews tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That assumption is incorrect. Bulls and goats delayed God's wrath by taking away sin, but... Didn't we learn that sacrifices were for reconnecting us to God when we became ritually impure or defiled? And Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for them to take away our intentional sins. But humor me. So, so let's, let's go with this. The bulls and goats took away sins so God didn't destroy us. Now back to our early session in the series. It's, it's as if that, what that says is God is yearning for blood. Somebody must die. And so if a bull gets slaughtered and blood gets splattered everywhere, the angry, bloodthirsty God is satisfied and it's all good. There's a fancy name for this that is called penal substitutionary atonement. Quoting pastor or professor of New Testament, Greg Carey, who explains penal substitutionary atonement. It requires that someone must get hurt and badly in order that mortals may escape God's righteous wrath. Now Jesus, in this scenario, has shown up as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. To do that, to, to do that, to get hurt badly with human blood. Because unbeknownst to me, according to All About Following Jesus, human blood is God's well-known solution. So he poured out his blood as the ultimate sacrifice, thereby eliminating the need for bulls and goats. So, what do we have here? Well, for us, it's a matter of convenience. No more messing with farm animals. We don't have to bring a bull or a goat because what they did, Jesus just did. For the bulls and goats, it's a new lease on life. Think of how many will not have to die because Jesus came and did that. Thus, the conclusion is Jesus is a sacrifice. And here it comes, brothers and sisters. But...
Is that assumption correct? Does that, can that actually work? And for this discussion, for this rebuttal, I will put you in the awkward position of explaining yourself to an anti-missionary, to a traditional Jew, to an atheist, to a critic of the Bible. I will put you in the position of explaining how that is consistent with the God who loves us. And furthermore, how and where it is justified in the Torah that God demands a human sacrifice that we may go to heaven. Because here's the, here's the challenge. The objections I'm about to show you are all true and all valid. And if you don't know these things, you are toast when an anti-missionary critic somebody comes to you and says, do you realize what you're saying? But you see, you would never even think about what you're saying because it's so fundamentally foundational to Christian thought. You wouldn't think twice about what I've just put forth there. I'm not saying you, like, I'm saying you generally speaking. I hope after 15 weeks you would think a little differently. The requirements of sacrifice. And I'm going to go through these very, very quickly, so you may want to jot them down because you're probably not going to remember them. Or you can go back and listen when you have a notepad in front of you. The requirements of sacrifice. Jesus was a sacrifice, but a sacrifice was an animal from the flock or herd. A sacrifice is a clean, kosher, unblemished animal. Nowhere does the Torah offer the qualifications for humans to be sacrificed. Jesus was a sacrifice, but sacrifices were only allowed in the temple by the service of the priests. Yeshua was crucified outside the temple walls by a group of idolatrous, pagan, polytheistic Romans. Jesus was a sacrifice, but there is a specific way in which the sacrifices were to be offered. And it's centered on compassion and mercy and a humane death. Even today, a, a prescribed way of, of killing things that's found, or of, of preparing things for meat, kosher slaughter occurs with a slice across the jugular vein. This is from Deuteronomy 12, 21, where God said, you can eat meat, but you're going to kill it the way I told you to kill it. And how did he tell them to kill it? Kosher, humane, quick, cut the jugular. Two to three seconds, the animal is unconscious, and that's it. Sacrifices were clean, kosher, unblemished animals that were killed in a humane way. The idea of a 
tortured animal, beaten, bloodied with its hide ripped off and, 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 and just covered with spit and blood and horrible things would never be an acceptable sacrifice in the temple. Yeshua was a sacrifice for sin. I mean, for goodness sakes, he was killed on Passover. But Passover sacrifice wasn't about sin. That was Yom Kippur. And the Passover sacrifice, uh, the Yom Kippur sacrifice wasn't a lamb. It was a bull and goat. Yeshua was a sacrifice, but Yeshua was a human being. Human sacrifice is repugnant before God. As a matter of fact, it is prohibited. As a matter of fact, the thought never even entered his mind, according to the book of Jeremiah chapter 32. Never even entered my mind that you, you, you lost Israelites would sacrifice your children to Molech. I mean, the biggest thing God said was, listen, kill everybody in the land because their ways will pollute you. And what were their ways? One of them was sacrificing their children and human sacrifice. Now, somebody in the room or somebody listening is getting scared. Because, man, this sounds kind of heretical. Stay with me. If the temple on earth required such a strict sense of protocol, how much more would you say that the temple in heaven would require a strict protocol if we're bringing a sacrifice there? If Yeshua's sacrifice was to be the sacrifice to replace all sacrifices, shouldn't it have been conducted in alignment with at least some of the Torah's prescribed methods for sacrifice? Wouldn't that make sense? Is this assumption correct? Jesus was a sacrifice. Unfortunately, some Christians have turned this one, one thing into a dogmatic system in which Jesus had to die in order to avert God's wrath. I'm quoting this professor of New Testament again, Greg Carey. Some even go so far as imagining God punishing Jesus which is an extremely bizarre concept when you think of the incarnation and, and how Yeshua came to be. Yeshua, though, here's the challenge. Has to be a literal sacrifice if we're going to stick to the prevalent thinking on Hebrews. And that is that he destroyed the system. 
He has to equate to a bull or goat because he destroyed the system, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the Torah, all of it. In the Christian mind, he's got to literally be a sacrifice. And as all those scriptures I showed you, it doesn't take, it's not hard to justify that assumption from the Bible, right? So we have this difficulty and challenge. I want you to hear me very very clearly right now because hearing this sermon out of the context of the rest of this series is dangerous to your spiritual health and to mine as the teacher. I understand that every person in this room, everyone everywhere who's hearing this who is a believer in Yeshua has been confronted with images of Yeshua dying. This, 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 this graphic execution that took place over six hours and longer if you consider everything before the night before. I realize that these images bring forth in us such a gut-wrenching pain that someone went through that for us. Someone very special. I realize that, that these, these emotions of pain and guilt and sadness and anger and tears that all surround this imagery of Jesus as sacrifice are very real for everyone in this room. I, as a matter of fact, went back and watched an old video that I watch periodically, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a YouTube video by the band Desperation Band singing Amaze. Lord, I'm amazed by you, how you love me. But the video is The Passion of the Christ, which is one of the most anti-Semitic films ever created. But nevertheless... The graphic, gruesome execution of Messiah Yeshua is portrayed there like never before. And so as I was preparing this message to make certain that my context and my heart and everything is in the right place, I went back and watched that video, listened, sung, cried, wept, hurt, just angst. I get it. I am not diminishing Yeshua. Well, yes, you are. No, I'm going to put him in the role he needs to be in for you and everybody else. Wow, that's a bold statement. Well, that's what I was told to do. So hear me clearly. Jesus was not a sacrifice. In the literal, Levitical, biblical sense of the word, Jesus was not a sacrifice. He was like nothing on earth. Just like he was not a priest like the Aaronic order, just like, he, just like his venue where he figuratively carried his blood is not the temple on earth. It's the temple in heaven. He's a priest like Melchizedek, not Aaron. He went into the divine, the supernal holy of holies in heaven, not on earth. So too his sacrifice was not like any other sacrifice that took place on this earth. It couldn't. 
And this was ordained from before the foundations of the world, before there even was a sacrificial system. Because he's not like anything that's ever been before. But this has been and continues to be Christianity's challenge from the beginning. That is, separated from the Jewish context and understanding of the Bible, the sacrifices, and their purpose. You are left with searching out a meaning for this that ends up in this penal substitutionary atonement. Something must die. Something must hurt badly in order that the angry God is pacified. Yeshua was not a sacrifice in the Levitical Torah sense of the word, but, and here comes your answer to the critic to the anti-missionary, to the, to the confused person who's trying to figure out how human sacrifice flows into this. Yeshua was not a sacrifice in the literal sense, but the authors of the Gospels and the apostolic writings use all of these sacrifice metaphors because they saw so very clearly what Yeshua had done. And they saw it in a Jewish perspective, in a temple-healthy, priest-healthy, Hebrews-healthy way. Do you know what a metaphor is, literally? I don't know what a metaphor is because it's not defined here. A figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or act to which it is not literally applicable. That is a metaphor. And so the apostles and all of the writers used a metaphor for Yeshua as a sacrifice. Do you know why? Because Yeshua does what a sacrifice does. What does a sacrifice do? Hebrews author and the other authors of the New Testament have no need to try to show the futility of the temple or even of the bulls and goats or any of that. All that's said here is day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to make a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. When he says to these people, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's as if he's saying, guys, come on. You know this. You know this. 
It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. We have a high priest of a divine order operating in a divine venue with a divine sacrifice that he himself has taken in on our behalf. His own blood, again, figuratively. Yeshua did not die on the cross, collect his blood, ascend to heaven, walk in with a bucket, and splash it all over heaven. It's a metaphor for the work of Yeshua in the supernal holy of holies that he carried his blood in to do what sacrifices do. What do sacrifices do? I'm hoping after 15 weeks, you know what sacrifices do, what their intention was in God's mind, what their intention and purpose was in the, in the Jewish mind, in the first century mind, and even still today. What do sacrifices do? You remember the word korban, an offering, a gift from the word korav, which means to draw near. And you remember in the first couple of weeks when I was talking to you about sacrifices and this bloodthirsty, angry God and how that penal substitutionary atonement thing that the blood and bulls and goats, like it covered us up so that we didn't get struck by a lightning bolt. No. The blood of bulls and goats removed the ritual impurity. The blood of bulls and goats created us anew in a sense so that we could approach God in his holy space. Do you remember? We bring a korban. We're bringing like this so that God says, ah, I missed you. Welcome back. Sacrifices are about connection. It's not about pacifying a bloodthirsty God. Only through Yeshua's korban, the sacrifice he brought into the deuteros, can we ever hope for, for Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy. That mirror is added by the translators, by the way. That's why it's in italics. A copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, he has gone a head to restore the connection. Sacrifices are about connection, like the earthly sacrifices reconnected. Yeshua, like a sacrifice, made the ultimate connection for you and I. And it's not hard to see why the lamb metaphor arises repeatedly. Hear me again, the lamb metaphor. That is to say, comparing something to something that is not literally that thing. The lamb metaphor, it, 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 it arises repeatedly to describe Yeshua. Why? Where is the most famous lamb encounter in the scriptures? Pesach. Great. What does that mean? What was Pesach about? Pesach had some elements. Blood, redemption from slavery, freedom, connection, relationship, restoration of relationship. In essence, it was from death to life. That's what Passover was about. Slaves living in misery 
tortured, horrible, and God hears their cries, and by the blood, he, he saves them. And they go from being horribly mistreated slaves to free, redeemed from bondage. Man, does this sound familiar? I think Paul said something like this. As a matter of fact, Paul makes this Passover analogy all over the place. Why? I'm pretty sure Paul was sitting there one day and said, hmm, hmm, Passover. Passover. Yeshua is like the Pesach. He's brought us from death, certain death, into eternal life. That is to a relationship with God. And you remember what happened. They came from slavery through the waters to the other side and then they went to Mount Sinai and they heard God speak and they received the Torah. Man, this kind of sounds like Yeshua who brought us from death through the waters to life and ultimately to where? to receive the Torah written on our hearts as part of, not the old covenant, but the new covenant. Oh my gosh, Paul said, I'm on to something. This is good. I'm going to write this down in some of these letters. It's not hard to see where the lamb metaphor came from. It's perfect. It fits. Our high priest is the mediator of this new covenant. Remember, new, novel, never experienced, not renewed. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first, the protos, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Something that had never been possible and could not have been achieved any other way was created, achieved, cemented, secured for all time by the blood of Messiah Yeshua. It has nothing to do in the biggest sense with the temple and the earthly service there. It's not an eradication of those concepts. It doesn't need to be. It's not that. And he doesn't literally need to be a Levitical sacrifice. And we don't need to think of him that way. What we think of him as, which is what the author of Hebrews is saying over and over and over and over again. He's not saying, Eric, I want you to, I want you to just sit there and I want you to think about Yeshua having his back ripped off. And I want you to think about him bloody with nearly his guts hanging out. And I want you to think of that. And I want you to dwell on that. And I want you to think about it as a, he's sacrificed. He's like one of these sacrifices that you're watching in the temple. Well, well, author of Hebrews, no, he's not. He wasn't a Levitical sacrifice. 
The author of Hebrews takes a very different tact, though he has sacrifice all in there because it's a metaphor for what the high priest did. That is the message of Hebrews that he wants them to get. Yeshua is our high priest. And he is a doozy of one. He was able to do what the blood of bulls and goats was never able to or would be able to do. That is to purify you from sins of conscience, which we need to understand, but not today. That is dead works. That is lawless deeds. Those will be removed. Now, here's where we end. Yeshua did sacrifice, and he suffered immensely, more than anyone in this room could ever even begin to consider the suffering that he went through. Our correction of the assumption that Yeshua is a literal like sacrifice, that's hard to deny, but harder to deny would be the fact that this man, and he was fully human, suffered immensely on our behalf. That is undeniable. He sacrificed, and we can never forget that. The perfectly righteous mediator, undeserving of death himself, and I'm sorry to tell you, much less undeserving of death for you or I. He suffered, and he sacrificed himself. He suffered and died and quite literally shed his blood. Why? I want you to tell me why. Why did it have to be that way? If God is not about pain and revenge and suffering, and certainly he's not about human sacrifice, why? Why did it have to be this way? Why did he have to die? And answers about his sacrificial death and how it atones is our subject for next week. Offered to you, of course, from a Jewish perspective, which you will find to be water for your soul in terms of understanding. And quite appropriately, this message will be delivered to you on Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of comfort as we pass through these three weeks in this ninth of Av and return to Nachamu, Nachamu, Ahami Yomar Elohechem. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. 
If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.